Psalm 51. You know, I might as well read that uh, title up there, uh, which I believe is actually in the, the Hebrew Bible, too. So, uh, To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. This is God's word. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that not only would it instruct us, but uh, in particular with a, a psalm like this, that it would form us and shape us. It would shape our prayers. It would shape our disposition. And ultimately, it would yield the great fruits of uh, knowing you more and deeply knowing your love and your grace and your mercy more in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, good morning, everybody. So we are in a season of Lent, so I'm taking a little bit of a break from our series in the book of Acts, and I thought it would be good to kind of reflect on some basic and traditional practices that Christians have been uh, engaging in for many centuries, and especially during the Lenten season. Last week, we talked about fasting. And today, uh, I want to talk about confession and repentance. Now, in addition to being the season of Lent, uh, I think we are also in a very important season for our church because uh, we're having important conversations surrounding our mission as a church. And in view of that, uh, I think one of the things that I've been praying for, I think some of us have been praying for, is that ultimately God would stir the affections of our hearts for Jesus because if we don't have that, if we don't have a heart for Jesus, then I don't think it's really possible to have a heart for mission. There was a story in a book that I read that I was thinking about send, sending for this Tuesday. Uh, but it was basically a story, the book is about like churches in decline and like why that's happening and how churches are trying to address that. And why churches, the way churches are addressing that is probably not the right way to go about it. So anyway, there's this uh, story about a church that was in decline. It's made up mostly of elderly folks, and that's actually a lot of churches in the U.S. right now. Uh, in one particular church, 
uh, one of its members was an elderly member. Uh, she died of lung cancer. And when she died, or I guess when she was sick, her grandson uh, would go take care of her, basically. And uh, during that period of time, uh, her grandson and you know, his grandmother, they established like, uh, a good relationship, and they actually got closer during that time. And so before she died, she told her grandson, who had never really been to church, uh, she told him to do three things. She said, number one, take care of your teeth. Mm. Number two, save your money. And number three, she said, go find God. So after she died, uh, maybe as a way for him to grieve, this is what he did. He called the dentist, made mm -hmm. a dentist appointment. He called somebody to ask him out, uh, to ask him or to help him with his finances and set up some kind of IRA. Then he decided to go visit his grandmother's church. And uh, as he awkwardly came in, like one of the very few young people surrounded by a bunch of elderly folks, uh, he sat there awkwardly and he said, do you guys have Bible study? And they said, yeah, we have Bible study on Wednesdays. And he said, can I come? And they said, sure, you can come. So that Wednesday, he awkwardly walks into Bible study. They're all sitting in a circle. And he shares why he's there. And people haven't made the connection of like, who he is and how he's related to uh, this former member who had died. And he says, well, I'm, his grandmother's name is Jean. He says, I am uh, Jean's grandson. And after she died, she told me to do three things. The third of which is to go find God. And so that's why I'm here. I'm here to find God. And I figure uh, all of you would know how to help me to do that. To which the members of the group look awkwardly at one another and they said, do we? Right? Very important story. After I read that story, it did make me think about our church. What if someone came in, and maybe someone is here today, what if someone came in, entered the church and said, you know, I have this desire to know God, I have no idea how to go about doing that. And the person asked like any of you and said, how, how do I know God? What would you say? How would you respond? Uh, or maybe one of the uh, our, our students, or maybe one of the younger kids, maybe one of your kids asked you, like, Mommy, Daddy, you know, uh, I, I think I want to know God. How do I do that? What would you say? Think about it. What would you say? It is entirely possible to be in the church your entire life and still have no idea what it means to know God because being in the church is not the same thing as knowing God. That doesn't mean being in a church doesn't help one know God. I think it does, because you're exposed to the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and you're exposed to worship, and you're exposed to things like prayer, but without knowing God personally, you eventually find out that the church is a very flawed place, and it's not worthy of putting your faith into it. Uh, if you mixed up church and Jesus, and you thought being in church was the same thing as knowing Jesus, then eventually, I think what happens is you get disillusioned with Christianity. And let me tell you, the church is not worthy of your faith. Only Jesus is worthy of your faith. And when you put your faith in Jesus, the person of Jesus, then you understand why it's so important to actually be part of a church. right? But Jesus is not tangible as the church is tangible. So maybe it's a little bit more difficult for people to connect to Jesus as they would like you know, people in the church or people who are in the flesh. Maybe when you hear about how Jesus died on the cross, and forgave you of your sin, it doesn't really hit you. It doesn't really mean much to you because you aren't even sure why you need God to forgive you in the first place. 
But today what I want to do is, I want to give you maybe a part of the answer to that question that that grandson had walking into the church of, how do I know God? And I think part of the answer should be, well, uh, one way that you connect with God is going to be through repentance. Through repentance. Now, if you don't know what repentance means, that's okay. But basically, repentance is about having this recognition, and maybe beyond recognition, but this deep conviction that you have offended God in some way. That you have sinned in your heart, that you have done something, that you have thought things that are offensive to God, and you feel uh, bad about it. And the way you decide to deal with it is you turn to God and you seek His forgiveness, okay? So that's repentance. It's not just kind of bowling in self-pity of, ooh, I'm a sinner. But the important part is like you turn to Jesus and you say, hey, there is a path out of sin um, in the sense that Jesus has died on the cross for me. And I think one can have a very genuine understanding of what it means to profess, or I don't think someone can have a genuine uh, understanding of what it means to profess and believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior if you don't have a genuine uh, experience of repentance. Because in order for the gospel to mean anything, in order for the cross to mean anything to you at all, you do have to have a, a deep personal sense of your own sin. Otherwise, the cross just kind of becomes this idea, this concept that is nice to hear, but it won't have the power that uh, it has to draw you near to God into this powerful personal relationship with Him. And that's why I love the Psalms. The Psalms are not just telling you about God and conveying information to you, but it's actually showing you what it's like to engage with God. And that engagement comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in the form of praise and worship. It comes in the form of somebody who struggles with fear and uncertainty. It comes in the form of lament and maybe even anger. And it also comes in the form of repentance. It's the uh, difference between coming to church to learn about who God is, right, versus seeing someone earnestly praying or seeing someone singing in worship to God, and in this case, seeing someone confess and repent to God, right? It's kind of like, this is how somebody did it. This is how David did it. And by the way, the personal nature of faith doesn't necessarily mean uh, faith is private. And I think in our culture, we tend to think that faith is supposed to be private, and we're not supposed to express faith in public, and we're not supposed to talk about it in public forums. But if everyone practices the sincerity of their faith in private, then how is anybody really going to know what it looks like to know God? And that's why I like it when our kids are at least in the first part of our worship, because what it's doing is it's giving them an opportunity to see people uh, worship. Not just being told, oh, worship is important, but actually seeing all of us as a congregation in worship. And there has to be some kind of form where people can see what it looks like for people to sing and to pray. But I would also say it's important to see what it looks like when people repent. And so I know like the young kids can be a little bit of a distraction, especially in like a prayer meeting and you want to focus and constantly pray. But then how are we going to see like adults repent unless like you repent with them and say, ah, do, you, do any of you parents do this? Like I was a, I was a, I was a bad parent today and I, I took my stress from work out on my kids. I need to repent of that. Hey son, hey daughter, watch me repent of that. Right? That's probably not like a normal activity, although if you do do it, kudos to you. That's, that's going to be an amazing spiritual lesson, right? But where, where are the opportunities for people to see repentance? Well, um, for us, we can look at the psalm. We can look at Psalm 51. We can see how David did it. And I'm glad David didn't make his 
faith is so private, he made it public, he wrote it down, he wrote a song about it. Uh, I want this message to be more on the practical side and maybe a little bit memorable, so this is how I usually like to look at this song. I think we can structure it in three ways, and we can say, uh, when we see David repenting, uh, there's three things he does, right? He shows us that repentance looks outward, repentance looks inward, and then repentance looks upward. So first, repentance looks outward. Uh, this is a psalm written by King David. When I say outward, I mean David is looking at the sin that he committed outwardly, uh, the kind of sin that other people can see. Uh, he wasn't immediately aware of it, so Psalm 51 was written by David, and unlike other psalms, it actually tells us the context in which the psalm was written. There's a title of this psalm. It tells us it was written when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And this is a, a pretty famous story that you can read about in 2 Samuel chapters 11 to 12, but just in case you're not familiar with it, let me summarize it briefly. David, he notices this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and she's bathing on the roof. But Bathsheba is married to another man named Uriah. And David, because he's king, because he's power, he has power, he sends for Bathsheba, and he ends up basically taking her as if he, she is his wife. If that weren't bad enough, he plots to have Uriah killed in battle by sending him to the front of the battle where he would be most fierce. And not only is he taking another man's wife, but he is now having that man put in a position to be killed. And he can do that. Why? Because he's a king. Not only that, but David, because he was a king, he was actually supposed to be with the army rather than being back home in Jerusalem. But for some reason, he's chilling in his home in Jerusalem, not with his army. So David messes up in so many ways, and you would think he would be keenly aware of the, the evil that he has done, but the reality of his sin hasn't sunk into his heart yet. And I think that happens to a lot of people. People tell us what we've done wrong, and we, we don't really realize it in that moment. Uh, what we usually do is uh, we surround ourselves like with this protective shield. Right? We put this protective shield around us, and it prevents us from being convicted of that sin. So that, that protective shield around us, maybe it comes in the form of ignoring uh, what we did, ignoring our sin. Maybe it comes in the form of making light of it, saying, that's not a big deal. Maybe it comes in the form of blaming somebody else and saying, well, I only did this because this person did that. Right? Everyone does it, whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult. We all do that. We have this protective shield around us. But the problem with that protective shield is we might think it protects us from the pain of confronting our own sin, but what it also does is it blocks out the power of God's love and God's grace from penetrating our hearts. And so what we need is for that protective shield to come down. Yes, it'll introduce the pain of our sin, but yes, it also introduces the power of God's grace. When my kids fight, they say all kinds of unkind things to each other. And when I try to point out the unkind things that they say to each other, you know how they don't respond? They don't say this, Oh, no, I can't believe I, I sinned again against my sister. Oh, no, right? Never! This is how they respond. They have this protective shield around them. You know they say? Yeah, but she said this to me. Yeah, she did this to me. Yeah, remember last time she, she did this? Right? And I tried to explain. I said, look, look. Uh, you did something wrong, right? And should have apologized for it. But I just, I just can't penetrate that shield sometimes, right? So here's what I did one night. Usually at night, my kids like it uh, when like, Jenna or I read them a story. And 
read them like a story from a book. That's like the easy way. But then like occasionally I'll like make up a story and tell them a story, and they love that, which is like you know hard for me because then I got to be creative and think about a story. Uh, but sometimes, I, and you know what I do? I just bite off of already established stories. That's why they know so much about superheroes because I tell them uh, origin stories of like Spider-Man and Batman and Superman. <laughs> And uh, this particular night, I said, you know what, because they were fighting, I'm going to make up a story about two fighting sisters. And I forget what the story was, but it was basically about two <laughs> fighting sisters. And uh, sometimes it, it, it takes a story and to see like characters outside of yourself to kind of realize uh, like what you did, right? So, how does David realize his sin? God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And do you know what Nathan does? Nathan confronts David, and he tells him a story. He says, once upon a time, there were two men in a certain city. One man was rich. One man was poor. Rich man had a lot, a lot of flocks. The poor man had one lamb. The poor man brought the lamb, bought the lamb with his own money, raised it with love, raised it with care. It grew up with him and his children, and it used to lie in this man's arms. It was like one of his own children. Now a traveler came, and a rich man was unwilling to use one of his own herds for the traveler, so he ends up stealing or taking this poor man's one lamb. Simple story. You know what happens? David hears it. You know his reaction? He gets mad. He's like, what? Right? He understands, that's messed up. How could this rich man do that in that story? This man deserves to die. You know what David says? You are that man. <laughs> you are that man. David gets cut to the heart, leading to Psalm 51. So what does David do? This is the second one. He looks inward. If you think about a tree, the visible parts of a tree are the branches and like the fruit that come out of the branches. Uh, a couple years ago, this was during COVID. This was my COVID project. Uh, I redid my parents' backyard and uh, you know, they, my dad attempted to grow an apple tree that never really produced any apples, but he had this like tree, right? It was kind of in the way. So I said, let me, uh, let me get rid of this tree. Let me cut it down. So I got a chainsaw. So I cut it down, got a shovel, trying to dig out the tree. And, uh, the more I dug, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to be able to take this tree out. The roots are just like too deep. It's like too far under. I kept digging. I kept digging. I couldn't get to the bottom of the root. So ultimately I couldn't pull out the tree. Uh, <clears throat> what we usually see, like the fruit and the branches, uh, we, we can deal with and we can address, but uh, what makes a tree healthy or unhealthy are ultimately its roots. If the roots are healthy, the fruit will be healthy. If the roots are diseased, then the fruit will be unhealthy. And sin is a little bit like that too. Uh, the things that we see, usually, uh, you know, for, for the younger students, you get corrected on your behavior. Right? That's the thing that, that seems like, hey, you're doing this wrong. Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be jumping here. You shouldn't be uh, uh, stopping on those flowers, or like whatever it is. Right? That's, that's kind of what you get corrected on. But you also have to realize those are just the branches, but there is something that is deeper, like, like a tree root at the level of our heart. And uh, we can't just uh, repent of the external things that we see, but maybe, you know, as we get older and we start to, like, know our hearts a little bit better, what happens is we can begin to repent of our heart. 
the things inside of us, the things that are at the root. Look at what David repents of. He looks inward into his heart. He knows he also needs to repent of uh, not just what he did and his actions, but he needs to repent of the things that are not necessarily seen by others. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Notice he's not saying, uh, God, can you change my behavior? Can you make me a better behaved king? He's not saying that. He's saying, God, please give me a new heart. Make my heart clean. Not, hey, don't ever let me take another man's wife again. Don't ever let me get have an innocent man killed again. He says, make them new. Give me a clean heart. He knows sin is deeper than just what he did. Sin takes place at the root. And therefore, what he needs is uh, not just like a reformation of behavior, but he needs, uh, he needs a resurrected heart. Even if you look at the response of worship in verses 16 and 17, it's not just about external practice. David himself says, God will not delight in sacrifice or be pleased with a burnt offering. Rather, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That doesn't mean external sacrifices don't matter, but what it does mean is God desires the right heart to go along with the right expressions of worship. He's not looking for the person who has like all together on the outside, but inside is like spiritually dead. He's looking for the person who has a broken and a contrite heart, because that person is in a position to offer a genuine expression of worship, rather than simply just kind of going through the motions of what they think they're supposed to do. I think one of the maybe more uh, spiritually dangerous things, one of the greatest temptations, uh, for those of you, if you have been in church for a long time, or if you're somebody who grew up in the church, uh, you kind of put on like the Sunday face of like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm, I, I'm a Christian believer, so, like everything is right with me all the time. And we come to Sunday, um, I mean, even just pointing this out is not going to change anything. That's just kind of what happens on Sundays, right? Uh, but, like, but never mix like the public show or public display or uh, what's actually going on inside the human heart. Inside the human heart, man, we're pretty messed up. Inside the human heart, we, we care about what we want. We want what we want. We do whatever we can be of what we want. And when someone gets in the way of what we want, usually that's when we, uh, uh, we're angry. Usually that's when uh, we're bitter. Usually that's when uh, we're passive aggressive. Right? But I tell you this there's, there's moments in life where, you know, if we were deeply aware of our sin all the time and our repentance and all of all the time. That would be, be amazing. There are going to be moments in life where you, maybe you feel like you're really messed up. And I tell you, those moments, as painful as they are, can be very powerful moments. Because how often are we that deeply convicted of our sin? In those moments, when we turn to God and we receive His grace, those are moments where I think God shows us uh, a deeper part of Himself that maybe we were blind to because let's face it, we're blind to our, uh, the, the depth of our depravity. In those moments, God's grace tastes sweeter than anything. In 
Those are great moments. That's a moment David has here. And so this leads to our final point. If we just have conviction of sin, and we have no, nothing to do with it, like we have nowhere to put it, or nowhere to go with it, yeah, then uh, uh, then our faith like will just you know, make us feel horrible all the time, right? It's just a prerequisite. It's not the main part. Rather, we have to look upward. David looks upward here, and he does this in a few ways. First, he looks up in view of his sin, and he says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And it's interesting, he doesn't say, you know, I sinned against all these people. Right? When he had Uriah killed, he doesn't say, I, I sinned against Uriah. Why does David say, against you, God, have I sinned? Right? Because God is ultimately the one who created him, who appointed him to be king over his people. God is the one who gave him this vocation and helped him defeat Goliath. God is the one who saved him from his enemies and preserved his life. And what did David do with the life that God gave to him? He betrayed it. He betrayed the desire and the purposes that God had for his life by doing something that was ultimately self-serving. He, he abused the power that God gave him, right? It is one thing to maybe steal money. Yeah, that's bad. Have you ever stole money from your parents? Sorry, that was rhetorical. I didn't expect anybody to do that. Yeah, you did. When I was your age, I've done that too. And I still feel bad about it. Uh, you know, it's one thing to like, steal money in general, but to steal money from your parents, like the very, the very people who like, not only gave you life, supported you throughout your life, right? That, that's another dimension to what you've done. Your parents who... And make for your students, you don't appreciate this now, but when you get older, you'll appreciate it, right? Like how much they sacrificed for you. Uh, if you grew up in an immigrant family, how much like they worked hard for you. Like how much probably a lot of the lives that we receive are as a result of all of their hard work and sacrifice. And then imagine stealing from that person, right? That person who loves you so unconditionally. That, that's another level. David looks up, and he sees God, and he sees the kind of life God gave to him. He's floored by his sin because of who God is and what God has done. And David would go so far as to say, you know what, it would be completely justified and God would be completely blameless, blameless if he were to judge me. Uh, if, if I were to die, I deserve death, right? Because my sin against God is that deep. And if you don't get to a point in your repentance where you can say to God, you know what, you would be completely justified uh, if you judge me, if you cast your judgment upon me because of my sin against you, then there's probably something missing in that repentance. If you're saying, well, my sin is not that bad and God shouldn't get too upset, then you're probably not going to understand the depth of his love. Uh, that's why I understand actually God's character, his holiness, is so important. Because without understanding his holiness, uh, believe it or not, it's going to be hard to really understand the depth of his love. You're not looking up uh, and so you're not seeing the depth of your depravity, and if you can't see the depth of your depravity, you will never taste how sweet grace and mercy is, how, how wonderful it is to be forgiven. You will never taste the power of God, because you will never be transformed. 
you'll continue to have this protective shield around you that, yeah, blocks, blocks out the pain of confronting your own sin, but also will block out the joy of knowing God's love. The young man, that I mentioned in the beginning, came into our church and was looking for God. What would we say? He could say all kinds of things. He could say, hey, try reading the Bible. That would, that would not be bad advice. You could say, hey, come to church every Sunday and attend Sunday services. That also would not be bad advice. But you know where I might start? I might say something like this. Well, here's the thing. We can't actually find God, but God finds us. That's what His grace is all about. And maybe the reason why you're here is because God is actually seeking you in this moment. Maybe you're here because... God wants you to know Him. And if that is indeed the case, look at your life. Look at all the things that you tried to hide. Look at all the things that in your life that bring you shame. Look at all the things in your life that have hurt others. Look at all the things that uh, makes you feel unworthy. Don't run away from these things. Don't hide these things. Look at these things intently. Look inside. Look at your selfishness. Look at your your lust, look at your lack of self-control, look at your bitterness and hatred towards others, look at your pride, don't hide from it. And after you do that, look at God. Hear the message that he has for you. Jesus says, all these things that condemn you, I want to take it away. All these burdens that you carry, all that deep guilt, all that shame, your entire sense of being unworthy, I want to take that away from you. I'm going to take the condemnation, I'm going to take away the burden, and I am going to do what David prayed for in Psalm 51. I'm going to hide my face from your sins. Reality of your sins won't be a reality anymore because they've been put on Christ. I will blot out your iniquities. I will create in you a clean heart. I will renew a right spirit within you. You know what I won't do? I won't cast you away from my presence. I won't take my Holy Spirit from you. I will restore to you the joy of my salvation, and I will uphold you with a willing spirit. And when we have sufficient conviction of our sin, and when that leads us to repentance, and that restores our sense of neediness for God, God will find us there, and He will draw us near to Him. And we have sufficient conviction of how much we need the cross, then I think our affections for Jesus grow. But we need to humble ourselves repentance. Take off that protective shield so that we can allow God's wonderful, sweet love, grace, and mercy to be